Amen. Well, let me just encourage you to stay standing today for the reading of God's Word as we come to 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 1. We're in chapter 2 now, and we're going to read down to verse 7 today. This is the Word of the Lord for this morning. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. Great to have you with us this morning. And if you're new, just want to say welcome. My name's Scott. I'm the lead pastor here at Doxa Church. And it is a joy to have you with us. And hopefully I get the chance to meet you. If you are willing, I will be out uh, in the lobby after the service always look forward to meeting the people that are showing up. So grateful that you would spend some of your Sunday morning with us and delighted to get into God's Word with you. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're in this series on the book of 1 Timothy, talking about the church, which we're calling it the dearest place on earth. Amen? Amen, church? The dearest place on earth. Not because it's perfect, because I'm your pastor and you're here. And yet still, it is the dearest place on earth to us. And so we find ourselves in, in chapter 2 and, and just delighted to get into this. If you're on live stream, welcome uh, into this time of studying God's word and worshiping together. So glad that we could do this even from afar, depending on what your circumstances are. Just delighted that you can take part, okay? So here's the title of the message this morning. Salvation for all y'all. Okay, now I know we're not from the South, but many of you are thinking about moving to the South, so you're going to need to know <laughs> some of these things. Come on. That was a little funny. That's sad. That's sad. No, you're all staying here. You got a great church. There's going to be, Lord willing, a great school. We'll just build it here, Lord. If the Lord will do it, we're in it. We'll just keep going by faith. We'll just keep going by faith. But listen, 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 listen. No judgment on the people who moved to the south, okay? No judgment. Let me help you, okay? Wiktionary, which is Wikipedia's dictionary, which is pretty much all the truth about all the words that you would need to know about, <laughs> defines this phrase very specifically. And you need to know it because it's different than y'all, Okay? Now, if I were talking about y'all within a group, y'all could potentially be a subset of the group, okay? So y'all are on this team, and y'all are on that team, and that's two teams. But when you say all y'all, 
We're including everybody. All y'all. Do we want to say that together? All y'all. Okay? Salvation is for all y'all. Not a subset. Not for y'all, but all y'all. And see, the problem is very much theological in the church in Ephesus. Not a southern church, but needed a southern lesson. Okay? Because the subset of Ephesian pastors that were teaching about salvation, that was really more about self-righteousness, this exclusive group who were able to, in their minds, convince themselves that they could use the Bible to justify their own righteousness, they believed salvation was for an exclusive club of the most self-righteous, and that salvation was to exclude a large portion of the population. This was a problem in the church, and so they clearly didn't understand this all-y'all thing. What's interesting, though, is that that same kind of dynamic in the church at Ephesus is the way a lot of people view the church today, isn't it? An exclusive club for the self-righteous. We have got to break this down. That is not the good news that we preach to the world. We believe in a gospel that is by grace alone. Every single Christian in this room is here by grace alone. It has nothing to do with what they've done. It has nothing to do with how good they've been. In fact, the very opposite. In order to become part of the family of God, they have had to exchange their worthless works and hold fast to Jesus Christ by faith. Believing in his works, believing in his person, believing in his death and resurrection in our place for our sin. See, we don't bring any substance to the table. We bring the sin, God brings the salvation. And this is a problem in the Ephesian church when the church is standing up and going, here's a little group of the, sa of the saved and everyone else is not really a part. They're not in the mind of the church. And so not only are they missing it theologically with getting the gospel wrong, they're missing it practically or missionally because they are not thinking about the world that they're called to reach. And so Paul's like, I need you, Timothy, you young pastor, to stay in that church, and I need you to wage the good warfare. Do you remember that last week? I need you to wear, wage this spiritual warfare because they were off by implication on the gospel and by application on their missional strategy. And so he gives them this instruction today, and it's kind of the application. If chapter one is the implications of the gospel gone wrong, of a salvific exclusiveness that cut off a bunch of people, then chapter two is the application for how do we correct this error. So check this out. Here's the big idea for this morning. Salvation is for all. We're gonna have to define the word all the way Paul does. But salvation is for all, I'm using it like Paul uses it, since there is one God and one mediator who gave himself as a ransom for all. All in the one, all in the one, they're tied together. We'll see that in our text this morning. So the question is, you've got the gospel wrong. You've taught different things, not leading to the plan of God that is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. No, you've got the speculation that comes from the self-righteous mentality that you can use the Bible to justify your own works. That's not the gospel. The church is not an exclusive club for the self-righteous. The church is a gathering of God's people who know they're sinners saved by grace. And so 
we need to see these corrections take place. There are four corrections that need to take place. Some are behavioral corrections, some are mentality corrections, four of them in the text. And here's the first one, and it's probably the main one. Resolve to pray for all. Here's how we know it's connected to chapter one. I read it in the ESV like this. First of all, then, is that what you're reading? Or maybe you have a therefore. Does someone have a therefore in the text? First of all, then, or therefore, when you get first of all, then, here, here's the thing. A lot of times when we read Bible books, we don't understand that like Paul's building an argument. He didn't like write chapter one, take a few months off, come back and go, huh, what do I want to write about today? If we don't understand the argument, that's on us to figure it out, but he's building an argument. And when he says, first of all, then, he's taking everything he said in chapter one and going, here's some application for how we're going to fix this issue, okay? So first of all, then, and he's saying, like, of first importance, not just sequentially, here's the first thing, but first importance, we got to get this dialed in, what's going to happen to deal with this Bible butchering that was going on, that was replacing the, God, the gospel and God's plan of salvation with this exclusive salvific self-righteousness idea that they had going on. He goes, the first item practically we need to fix, we need to change the way we pray. This fits the context really well. Last week was about warfare. It was about spiritual warfare. If you read the passage in Ephesians 6 on the armor of God, you all know that passage? It says, well, once you're done putting on all of the armor of God, you're to take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then it says, praying at all times in the spirit with prayer and supplication. And so if we're gonna be ready, this totally fits. Do you see this? If we're gonna be ready to truly battle in the warfare for the gospel, here's one of the things we take with us, praying at all times in the spirit with prayer and supplication. Praying, and he's gonna tell us who to pray for, but let me remind you that any good soldier needs direct communication with their commander in the mission. That's not a surprise, right? This is what we would expect from anyone who was actually in a war. The problem is you and I have turned prayer into something far different than God designed it to be. John Piper wrote a book called Desiring God, one of the most famous books, if not the most famous book he wrote. And he says this, quote, we have taken a wartime, I love this, we have taken a wartime walkie-talkie and tried to turn it into a civilian intercom to call the servants for another cushion in the den. Prayer is a walkie-talkie for warfare, not a domestic intercom for increasing our conveniences, end quote. So no wonder our prayer lives are so bad because he's saying we use it to call down comforts instead of reinforcements. And I was thinking about it based on what we're dealing with in our context, and I see two real reasons people pray on a regular basis. I see two real reasons why it's hard to get together to pray. Uh, we are so independent and so self-sufficient, we are already at a disadvantage in general. Those aren't my ways that we pray, but those are reasons we don't. The Puritans said, listen, if you don't have a dependence based on the way that you live, you need to cultivate a learned dependence on the Lord. 
But because of our situation, it's a dangerous reality where you and I live in such self-sufficiency and such independence where we can basically take care of ourselves in every single way. We pray in two ways. God is our cosmic butler or heavenly 911. We're either praying for God to make softer our circumstances or we're praying like 911 is to an ambulance coming, heavenly 911 when everything just goes really bad. Like guys, that is such a great ploy of the enemy to get us to believe that about prayer. That's where most of us live. And the problem is that you and I forget we're in a battle and that goes back to last week. Paul's telling Timothy to wage the good warfare. We forget we're in a battle, or here's the thing, we exclude ourselves from even believing we're in a battle. We, we'd like not to, to think about a battle because battles are rough. Maybe we even compare it to the same way, like it's, there's a reason we don't watch news at night, right? Because it's like bad stuff. But there's true realities that we need to hold on to, and if we don't, we will find ourselves off mission, off what the Lord wants us to do, off with what the Lord wants us to spend ourselves with in this life. And so he says, Timothy, you got to get these guys praying. You got to get them praying all kinds of prayers for, listen, all kinds of people, okay? Some people evidently in the church, because of their salvific exclusivism, didn't make their prayers. We're going to talk about maybe some folks that don't make your prayers. But he goes, here, I want you to pray. I urge that and he gives this list of prayers, right? Supplications, prayers, inter intercessions, and thanksgivings. I want you to pray all kinds of prayers is what he's saying, okay? I could give you like an in-depth look at every word, but I don't think that's the point. You know what I'm saying? So I could tell you like what intercessions are, speaking specifically about a request for a particular need. And I could tell you that the word prayers is the more general word giving emphasis to bringing those needs before God specifically. Then I could tell you that intercessions is essentially the focus on appealing boldly before the throne on behalf of someone else. And I could tell you that thanksgivings, well, that one's pretty self-explanatory. But that's not the point. The point is, I want you to pray all kinds of prayers, and I want you to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Notice what it says here. All people, okay? The big idea, salvation is for all. Now I'm using it the way Paul's using the word all, all people. Here's what I believe he's making clear about how he's using the word all. All represents or seems to indicate kinds of people. Or you could put it another way, categories of mankind. So like think about Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ. You see those distinctions there? The gospel saves out of all those categories. You go to Colossians 3 and you see the same thing. They'll put together like circumcised or uncircumcised. You, you think about categories like employers or employees. Does God only want to save the employers? No, no, no. God wants to save all people. So it's not specifically speaking to every last individual. No, God has a desire for every last individual to be saved. We're going to talk about that. 
But specifically, and here's how we know in the context, he's talking about kinds of people because he names a kind of people right after. So context is hemming us in to how we understand all. This text is butchered. It's a glorious text. And I'm wanting it to be as glorious as it is, but I want to make sure we understand how Paul is using this, okay? He says, I want you to pray for all people, and then he gives us a specific category. You know you should be praying for? Ready for this? This is so great because it's so applicable for our day, isn't it? <laughs> Got him. For kings. You're like, yes, we don't have a king. <laughs> I will continue to not pray for my civil authorities. No, no, no. Then Paul kind of gives, well, let's just call it a junk drawer term for all who are in high positions. We're like, oh. He's giving a category here, but what's interesting is he's picking a category that let's just say not everyone was wild about. Um, you ever heard of an emperor named Nero? Uh, this was during Emperor Nero's reign, and he started kind of like not as bad as you crazy, but not as bad, and it got worse in his reign. This was written roughly AD 64, and if I'm remembering the reign of Nero, he goes from like 54 to 68. So we're talking about the last few years of his reign when it got really bad, when the persecution was really bad, when the injustice was really bad, when the murdering was really bad. There, there was a whole bunch of things going on, and he's saying to a people, you need to be praying for all people, and yes, even that type of person. Actually, at the time that this was written, there was no Christian ruler that existed anywhere in the world at that time. You need to be praying for them. This is the person that we think about who's so far gone, I don't even want to waste my breath praying for them. Do you have that person in your life? You're like, they're so far off of anything even remotely close to someone who could possibly be ready to get saved. I'm not even going to pray about it. I'm so discouraged. Or maybe you're just filled with unbelief. Or maybe it's a little bit of hatred in your heart towards that person. Or maybe you're just so upset at the government, you're like, they don't, I'm not going to give them any help from God. They don't need that. They need judgment. All right, slow down, tiger. God can deal with that. You be faithful to pray. So, so let me ask you a question. Who's off your list? I want you to think about it. Who's off your list? Who was on it and now is off of it? Who's off your radar? Used to think about them and now you don't. Let's be honest, maybe you got tired praying for somebody. Who's your heart hardened to? Who are you overlooking? Who are you faithless about? You think about the worst person in your life. We are called as Christians to love our enemies. I think part of our understanding that the gospel invitation is for all, to pray for all, is man, God, continue to soften our heart to the most lost in our worlds. I mean, if we can pray for the ungodliness of this wicked government that Paul is talking about, generally speaking, and, and could speak into any other wicked governing officials, if we can pray for people like that, we can pray for others. And I think what Paul's saying here is it's time to pray like you believe the inclusive invitation of the gospel is for all. 
and he gives the purpose. He says, Here, here's why. I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, the civil magistrates, as bad as they are, be praying. Why? And this is a phrase that gets messed up a lot, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Okay, I'm going to pray for my government officials so I can spend more time in my backyard sipping my ties by the pool. Comfort, peace, happiness. Yes, this is about if I pray for the government, then I will have a more personally peaceful life. And it's true in a sense, but we need to clarify what sense that is. When Paul is saying this, first of all, he says that we may lead this life. Not I, we. And if you were to look at Paul's own life, it would lead us to understand that he can't mean peaceful and quiet like literally a sheltered life because Paul lived something far from a sheltered life. This cannot mean that you're free from all trouble, but rather what I think the intention of this passage is saying is that in praying for all, civil magistrates included, we'd not be a hindrance to gospel progress. That's what I think it's saying. So how does that tie into the peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in any way? Here's what I think he's getting at. If we commit to praying for all, that the church doesn't create any unnecessary divisions and exclusions that could create enmity between the church and those the church is called to reach. Like what we have to get across to the world is that this is not a place that's not for them. This place is for you and we welcome you. It's not about you, but it's for you. It's, it's for the least and the lost. You go, man, I, I, I've literally heard people come into Doxa and, and share their story and be so honest with me. They're like, I haven't been to church in years. Totally thought I was gonna get struck by a lightning bolt when I came in here. I mean, and I, I think they were serious. Like, this is how I'm gonna die. I'm going back to church, you know? And... And, and there's, so there's something about the holiness of God that like, I don't want to keep, like, you know, play that down. God is holy. But at the same time, you are welcome. And I don't want to create any unnecessary divisions where we say, we articulate, we believe, we hold a position where we're saying to a particular subset of society, this place is not for you. This people is not for you. This salvation that we proclaim, that we sing about is not for you. I think he's saying we ought to live a peaceful and quiet life in the sense of not creating any unnecessary divisions between different kinds of people, creating unnecessary exclusions about, you know, somebody believing that the, the, the salvation that came through Jesus Christ isn't really for all but instead for a select, exclusive, self-righteous few, and he's saying, I want you to live this way so that in every way, the idea is right gospel behavior would lead, excuse me, belief would lead to full gospel behavior. Right gospel belief would lead to full gospel behavior. And so he's saying, it's not ultimately about our personal peace, but our corporate witness. We're not going to be at peace with the world because we're softening the message. We're not going to be at peace with the world because we dumb down the holiness of God. 
We're going to be at peace with the world because we believe we're sinners saved by grace, and we're going to believe that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of whom we are the foremost. Would you come? Would you come? We're kind of excited about that. Come on. Come on. Let me ask you, would you describe yourself in that way in this season? Is this your heart? Are there people, are there exclusions, are there ways that you operate that creates an unnecessary division between others? Paul says that's got to get fixed. He says pray for all. Then he says this. Here's the second correction you need to make. Recall God's desire is for all. Recall that God's desire is for all. He says pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people simply for this because it's good because it's morally good because it aligns with the heart of god because this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of and paul keeps wanting to hammer this god's the savior god's our savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Since God's desire is for all, it is good and pleasing to pray for all. This is God's heart. Listen, if we don't share this heart as a church, if you don't share this heart as an individual, you need to be praying, God, enlarge my heart to match your heart. God, give me this heart. God, give me this passion. God, give me this hunger and compassion for others that don't know you. Give me this heart for all people, just like you, Father, desire all people to be saved. There's that word, all people, again. He's picking that up from where? Verse 1. He desires all people to be saved. What's he talking about? Again, the context, all sorts, all kinds of people. Here's how Augustine, in his commentary on this verse, explained the all people again, quote, no nation of the earth and no rank of society is excluded from salvation. That's what it means. Since God wills to offer the gospel to all without exception, and all God's people said. Amen. Okay. William Hendrickson, a more modern commentator, said the way to describe and understand all people here is all men, regardless of social, national, and ethnic distinctions. This is God's desire, and it has been that way all the way back to the book of Genesis when he gave a promise to Abraham and said, through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This has been God's heart. Now, let's talk about what it's not saying. I think that's important. This text isn't saying that all will be saved. You know why I know that? Because God desires that all of us not sin either. So this is not a defense for universalism. This is not saying that all will be saved. It's speaking of God's desire. It's speaking of God's heart in a sense. The other thing about this text is this text isn't saying or giving an in-depth look at the atonement. That's not the point of the passage. And the context is clear. 
Because the context of the passage is emphasizing that the church specifically not exclude anyone, not even the governing authorities from the gospel pursuit and opportunity and invitation since God's desire is all kinds of people be saved. And yet in all of that, it's still clear. Ultimately, we have this dynamic that's going on in Scripture where God is sovereign in salvation, that salvation is of the Lord. That's why it says, who desires all people to be saved. You know what that's telling me right now? That is a passive verb, meaning you can't save yourself. You can't do it. You don't have it in you. You can't because you won't. You need help. You need to be saved. God's heart is that you would experience the fullness of salvation. So here's this interesting dynamic because salvation is of the Lord. It's his. You need to be saved. You don't save yourself. And at the same time, while salvation is of the Lord's, it says that you need to come to the knowledge of the truth. So so what's he talking about there? You've got both sides of God's sovereignty and human responsibility all in one passage. God's heart, that you be saved, passive, and come active to the knowledge of the truth, which means implication is it speaks to the personal response each and every one of us is responsible to make towards Christ. God is sovereign in salvation, but you must come. You must come to the knowledge of the truth, which, by the way, that phrase, and especially the word truth there, is used in uh, Paul's earlier writings to describe the gospel. You must come to a knowledge of the gospel. You need to understand it. Then you need to apply it. You need to put your confidence in it. You need to submit to it. You need to make Lord Jesus Lord over all of it, over all of your life. All of that is built into by faith. A repentant faith is off the throne of my life, Christ on the throne of my life. Rejecting my works, receiving what Christ has done. Doing nothing, putting nothing, no stake in who I become later on as a Christian or who I've been in the past as a very self-righteous individual. It is all in the person and work of Jesus. But you come and say, that's true, I believe it. And I apply it to my life. How? By faith. You trust. You put your confidence in. The way that you would, I use this illustration often from evangelism days of old. You put your trust in Jesus like you put your trust in a parachute before you're going to jump out of a plane. There's no saved people going, that's great, and then you jump out of a plane. You're missing, you're misunderstanding faith at that point. Saved people go, acknowledge that it can save me, and I'm going to use it. I'm going to apply it. I'm going to put it on. That's what believers do. So he says, recall that God's desire is for all, and then he gets us into the gospel. So if you're like, I'm still unclear as to what the gospel is, as to what saves, oh, loved ones, you are going to get one of the most clear, definitive understandings of the gospel. It's going to be awesome. Number three, third correction. Remember Christ's death was a ransom for all. Remember Christ's death was a ransom for all. This is where Paul brings this argument together. It's awesome. I was talking to this week to a couple of people and they were just saying, man, it just seems like um, 
you really love teaching up there. And, I, and I, I didn't know where this is going, and I oftentimes don't know where it's going, and it could go many places. But I, I was like, yeah, like, um, I get so fired up preparing that I just throw it out there, and I don't even care what it does, you know? Like, I'm just so glad for what it's doing in me. I'm so glad for the picture of Christ that I get to see. I'm so honored for the opportunity to get to do this every single week. It is so good to my soul. And I can't believe I get the privilege of doing this. And so it's like, you know, everyone talks about the effectiveness in a ministry and whether so-and-so will come back and all that stuff. It's like, oh, no, no, I trust. Oh, that's the Lord's. But this is, this is what I get to do. I get to prepare this. And I just, for my own soul's sake, it's just to yell at a bunch of people for a while. And then whatever sticks, sticks. And that's the Spirit's job. But I get fired up about this. And this is, this is so good. This is gospel at its, gospel argumentation at its finest, Okay. So he's been talking about all, he's been talking about all, and now he's going to give us the basis for this argumentation. The basis for the all is the one. The basis for the all is the one. We need this heart. The basis for the all is the one. The whole argument, the push to pray for all is because there is one God and there is no other. What else can we do? They're going to stand before one God. We have to pray for everyone. Why? Because they're all going to stand before one God. There is one God. There is no other God. Everything other than the true God, it's going to be offensive, is not a God. Everything other than the true God is an idol. And according to 1 Corinthians 8, which we were recently studying ourselves, we know that an idol is nothing. Sure, a demonic entity might prop itself behind a particular idol that we give credence to in our culture, various religions, all this stuff. Ultimately, it's not a God. 1 Corinthians 8 says it like this, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Here, here's the reality. If there were many gods, it would follow that there'd be many ways to salvation as is taught today. If there were many gods, we should all strap that coexist sticker on our bumpers, okay? The, the problem is we can't do that. Why? Because there is one God and one God. So, so there's a religion, if we could call it that, that doesn't play nice with the other ones. All the other ones, interestingly enough, are willing to buddy-buddy up with each other and be like, we're all kind of the same, we're all trying to do good things, and, and then the Bible comes, and God is establishing through his own self-revelation who he is, and it's clear there is one God, and there is no other. And we do not coexist because an idol is nothing. And so if that's true, then we need to pray for all because if the opposite were true, that there were many gods, it would mean there were many ways to salvation. There would therefore be no need to pray for all because everyone's got their own way and they'll find their way to it. But that's not the message. They're not gonna find their way to it. A lot of people believe that and we must, by God's grace, shake them out of it. They're wrong. They're off. It's not that we're telling them they're off. The Bible is clear and it's backed up. Sure, that's a presupposition of my argument. We could talk about that too. 
It's precisely because there was one God in whom all must believe if any of the all are to be saved. This is the issue. If anyone's going to be saved, it's going to be saved by the one God. If any of the all, if any of the all are going to be saved, it's, they're going to be saved by the one God. The universality of the gospel offer is bound up in the oneness of God. Do you understand that that's what's getting at? Paul says it like this in Romans 3. He says, there is God the God of Jews only? This is Romans 3, 29 and 30. Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. That's his point. And that one God, listen to this, has provided one mediator. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. How awesome is that? Looking at the translations, it's emphasizing, Paul's emphasizing Christ identifying with us as our representative. There is one mediator. You know what a mediator is? The go-between between God and man to bring us to him. And he's man. It's not excluding that he's God. There's no way to be saved apart from the mediator being the God-man. But Jesus Christ is himself man. Paul wants us to get that. Paul wants us to understand that. There is no other way. There is no other name. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man. And some translations may even have it more succinctly as Christ Jesus himself, man. You can't say there's lots of ways to heaven in light of this text. There is one God there is one mediator who can bring you to God. There is salvation in no one else. So we pray for all. Now here's specifically how Christ served as our mediator. How did he serve as the go-between to bring sinful man to a holy God? How did he do it? Here's how he did it. He gave himself as a ransom for all. This is when it gets so fun. We know the word ransom is in the Bible. This word ransom in this text is the only time that this particular word for ransom is used in all of the New Testament. We understand that the word ransom means a payment made for the release of a prisoner as a basic understanding, okay? Or, or um, I don't know if you've seen like Ransom, the movie, right? And everyone's like, oh, that makes more sense. Like, you, you get your kids, you know, this is not, not your kids. How about some kids get kidnapped, okay? And there's a payment that you have to pay to get them back, right? That's the whole idea. Uh, you know, some dude with a weird voice calls in, give me $50 million and I'll give you your kids back. And you're like, oh, I don't know, I can't get 50 million. You know, that whole thing, right? But there's an exchange going on. They're taking your kids, you're paying the money, they give you back. This, this word is even more than this. It's more than the word ransom. It carries this idea of exchange, so it would be as if the kidnappers are saying, I have this one, this child, and the payment I want is you. That, that's what this is saying right here. The idea behind this is that the ransom price is him for you. 
This is Jesus for you. He died your death. He personally, for all who come to faith in Jesus, it was him for you. He gave us life as a ransom for all. He died your death. He bore your sin. Upon him was the chastisement that brought you peace. And he's picking this up from the substitutionary ransom idea is what this is. In your place. He's picking this up from when it was talked about of, of Jesus in the Gospels as Jesus coming, like in Mark 10, 45, to give his life as a ransom for, do you remember? Many. So the all there and the understanding of where Paul is pulling this from is those are in line. Again, all meaning all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles. Who would come to faith in Jesus. So what do we believe when we come to faith in Jesus? We believe that his death was the death I deserved to die. Christ died in my place. The wrath that deserved to be poured out on me was poured out on Jesus. The penalty that I deserved to pay was satisfied in full by the work of Jesus Christ. And by faith, God credits to you all the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And by faith, God credits to Jesus all your sin, where he suffered and died to forgive you for all of it, past, present, and future. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus himself, man, who gave himself as a ransom. Would you come? Would you come to the knowledge of the truth? The sad reality is because of our sin, some won't come. But because of the glorious offer of the gospel, we can extend it to all. Come, receive Jesus Christ. He died in your place for your sin. And join with Paul. We gotta join with Paul, church. We can't just pray this way. We can't just change our mentality. We have got to be active. We've got to be active in a world that needs Jesus. And so he finishes in this way. Reach those who make up the all. Okay, reach those who make up the all. I take that from the fact that he gives this amazing articulation of why the all is the all. The all is the all because there's one God and one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. It's the witness. It's what we testify to, okay? It's what we say when we talk about the gospel. Here it is, him for you. We testify to it. He was a ransom for you, a substitutionary ransom. It was an exchange. Paul says, for this reason, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. And I know you think I'm lying about that, but I'm not. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. He's given us a trifold description of his ministry. I was a herald of the Most High King. That's what preaching is, heralding. We read the newspaper. There used to be a guy in the corner that would see, hear ye, hear ye, a message from the king. He was a herald and a teacher to testify to this testimony that there is one God and you need to be saved by God from God. You need to be saved 
from the wrath deserving your sins and praise God, there is one mediator, Jesus Christ, whose self-giving was a substitutionary ransom for us. And we have that message, and we must testify. It has been entrusted to our generation. God has tarried this long. We must be the people that declare to those far and wide that the offer of gospel salvation through Jesus Christ is acceptable if you would come to the knowledge of the truth. But he says it like this. He's a teacher of the Gentiles. That's for sure all of us if you're not a Jew but it means nations. And so here's the nuance I want to get to you. We have to care about peoples, not just people. Difference. Peoples, not just people. Okay? The Great Commission is about peoples. Go and make disciples of all the nations. The ethnos. You could say there's, there's great need anywhere for the gospel, isn't there? Some of the places that seem the most Bible beltish are the ones that misunderstand the gospel quite significantly. But yet, while that is good to spend your time in, God wants our heart to be on peoples, not just people. If you were to think about it like a waffle, and all the little squares correspond to different kind of political, um, linguistic, geographical boundaries, God doesn't want syrup in just one of those in a really robust way. He wants syrup in a bunch of them. He wants syrup in all of them. There are people scattered around the world. This is why our heart is to make disciples, you guys. This is the work God's given us to do till the end, till God, there's no more breath left in our lungs. We are going to give ourselves not only to making disciples here, but to making disciples around the world amongst the least and the lost and the unreached because the heart is to see that salvation extends to all. And so we're going to remind ourselves again, we're going to take up that mantle afresh today. We're going to be reminded that this is passed on to us as the church of today to extend this mission to those who don't know, have never even heard of Jesus Christ. And we're going to start in some small way today by by gathering as God's people, by acknowledging this is true. And here in a profound way, we're going to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so in the back and in the front, you're going to come to the table today. What an appropriate day to come. To come and recognize the fact that we, we take of the cup that's here and we take of the bread because Jesus told us to saying this is the blood shed for you in the new covenant for the forgiveness of your sins. And taking the bread, and this is the bread that symbolizes my body, which was given for you, so that we can be reminded afresh of the gospel, of that ransom of him for me. And we can proclaim, even in our taking together, that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of all who will turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus. And if you are compelled by the gospel and not a believer today, I still don't want you to come to the table. I want you to give your life to Jesus. I want you to surrender your life to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I want you to acknowledge him that he is God, King, Savior, Lord, and Christ. I want you to call out to him for his mercy. As we proclaim that those who come forward are those who have been saved by grace, through faith, 
in Jesus alone. So when you're ready, church, come and take, but don't take, pick up. We'll take together in just a little bit. Let's do that now.